Welcome to the 32nd episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert learned the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's also a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author and professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His upcoming book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, can now be pre-ordered through Amazon and Borders Books. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin this show with the most recent and relevant fact concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What can you tell us about what happened or what can you tell us about the week that was and what does it mean? Jeremy, this was a good week in our battle against COVID-19. Despite delays due to the storm that ravaged many parts of the nation, vaccine administration is moving forward at a rapid pace. And the number of new cases, hospitalizations and deaths are dropping quickly following the holiday-driven surge. It's estimated that nearly 20% of Americans have received at least one dose of either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines, and another 30% of the population has had COVID and recovered. Putting the pieces together means that we're approaching half of our nation being protected, at least against the original coronavirus strain. But as we've discussed on each show, and I expect we'll be covering later today, that still leaves our nation vulnerable going forward for multiple reasons. One is the fact that we are not yet at herd immunity. To do that, we need to be at 70 or 80%. And second is the South African variant, along with other mutant forms. The one from England is now growing rapidly in the United States, and the state of California has published data on a mutant there that seems to be becoming dominant that is far more transmissible than the original coronavirus was. Without the wrinkle of these new mutant forms, and assuming that immunity after vaccination lasts for at least a year, the optimism comes from the fact that we are maybe only four to six months from the finish line. The analysis from the Federal Drug Administration today showed that the Johnson & Johnson one-shot vaccine is safe and is effective And that should lead to emergency use authorization later this week. And that will add another 100 million vaccine doses to the pipeline for the U.S. by the summer, although not quickly based upon the data that the company has provided. Overall, we're now seeing fewer than 50,000 cases a day, an 85% reduction from the peak a few weeks ago with hospitalizations and daily deaths down by more than 50%. Although people over the age of 70 still represent the population at greatest risk of dying from COVID-19, 20% of hospital admissions in the United States are individuals under the age of 50. 
and data indicate that in practice, the two vaccines are incredibly effective at reducing the severity of COVID-19 and eliminating the need for hospitalization. In fact, the CDC just announced that people who have received their second dose no longer need to be quarantined after they come into contact with an infected person, assuming that two weeks have passed since they received the second vaccination and that they are in no way symptomatic at the time. This aligns with the recommendations for individuals who have had COVID-19 and are fully recovered. They should, however, along with people who've had the vaccine, continue to wear a mask, keep six feet apart, and avoid crowded indoor spaces, at least until we fully understand whether individuals who are personally immune are also not able to transmit the virus to others. Robbie, a listener told us that the numbers on transmission, hospitalizations, and death seem to be moving up and down so fast that our head is spinning. What's going on with that? Jeremy, I've read dozens of opinion pieces from epidemiologists and other researchers, and their conclusions are split right down the middle. On one side are those who see the positive trend as evidence that herd immunity is almost here. In their minds, the combination of the rapid holiday surge combined with the vaccine administration to date has helped our nation get to the point where enough people are immune to slow transmission and avoid serious infection in others. If those on that side are right, we should see the transmission of disease continue to slowly abate, of course, unless a mutant variant makes previous immunity obsolete. On the other side of the debate are those individuals, including public health officials, who see what is happening as part of the seesaw dance our nation has been on for 12 months. Cases rise and we don masks and socially distance. Then they fall and we take the masks off and gather again. Next we begin to see an increase in cases and people put masks back on and they stay apart and the sequence repeats over and over. These more cautious officials believe we should remain on red alert and they fear a high likelihood that the infection rate will continue to climb later this spring as people drop their guard and continue to gather, celebrating the coming of nicer weather. My best guess is that both those who are cautious and those who are more optimistic are each right. And that what we are seeing goes back to our discussion early in the pandemic. When a virus has an exponential growth rate, every change in human behavior is magnified many times over. More immunity and increased social distancing and the rate of transmission declines extremely fast, far more so than we would imagine. Less social distancing and it rises equally rapidly. Looking forward, increased vaccination will serve like rain on a forest fire. But should a highly transmissible variant relatively immune to the vaccine become the dominant strain? And we'll see the equivalent of Santa Ana winds igniting the embers 
and flaming the fire. We've received dozens of emails from listeners who are wanting to know the latest updates on the various vaccines. What's new this week? As I mentioned, the early data on the effectiveness and safety of both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines is excellent. Based on the information submitted to the FDA, both vaccines appear to prevent symptomatic infection for over 90% of people following a single dose, although the level of protection achieved was lower in older recipients compared with younger ones. Controversy remains as to whether the success of a single injection means that we should prioritize first shots to everyone ahead of second shots to people at greatest risk. So far, federal agencies have not altered their guidelines. The reasons vary. Some scientists fear that immunity won't last as long after a single dose as after two. Others believe that it's simply better policy to stay what has been proven and to act on preliminary data and speculation. They remain convinced that the United States should continue to administer a second dose to everyone three to four weeks after the first in order to achieve maximal protection. Research from England looked at the protection afforded to people over the age of 80. What they found, again, was very optimistic. Even a single injection provided significant protection to this highly vulnerable group with a 57% overall reduction in infection rate and a 75% decrease in severe cases. This level of protection rose to 88% after the second shot. We know that for many vaccines, immunity drops in patients over 80, so this level of response is extremely encouraging. When it comes to vaccines, an ethical issue caught my eye this week, one that we had discussed previously. Medical ethics regulators in the United Kingdom gave approval to research efforts that included deliberately infecting some young, healthy volunteers in order to learn more about COVID-19 and to speed up vaccine development. You may remember from a podcast early in the coronavirus pandemic that some individuals in the United States urged our nation to use this intentional infection process to rapidly test the efficacy and safety of potential vaccines. They argued that these human challenge trials would provide almost immediate answers since you're directly infecting people and thereby allow vaccines to be developed and brought to market faster, saving tens of thousands of lives in the process. Remember from a previous program that it took nearly 40,000 study participants to be able to differentiate between the infection rate in people who received the vaccine versus those who were administered a placebo. By intentionally exposing people to the virus, as few as 200 individuals would only be needed to be tested in order to get information about the efficacy and safety of the vaccine. And we'd have that data in a matter of weeks, not months. In this study, young healthy individuals will be inoculated with the virus being placed directly in their nose 
with medical personnel and researchers observing them for 24 hours a day. None of the initial subjects will have been vaccinated. Then once scientists understand how much virus is needed for an individual to become ill, a second set of experiments will be done to test the efficacy of the vaccine against this ease of transmission and measure the severity of disease. Most ethicists and physicians oppose this type of human challenge trial, except under the direst of circumstances. I'm one of them. I believe that at a time when there is so much more we could do to reduce deaths that aren't being taken, that risking the lives of healthy individuals can't be justified. Finally, when it comes to vaccines, Pfizer submitted data to the FDA demonstrating that their vaccine doesn't need the intensely low temperatures they thought that it did for preservation and storage. Instead, according to the company, it can be kept in the usual pharmaceutical freezers that are available in most hospitals. Assuming this observation holds up under added scrutiny, it would simplify the transportation and vaccine administrative challenges that we've been discussing for the past month. Robbie, a listener asked about the latest thinking about the vaccination for pregnant women. Do we know any more about that? Jeremy, I'm pleased that after vaccinating approximately 20,000 pregnant women, our nation has not seen a major complication for either the mother or the baby. Of course, it will take many more months and even possibly years to be 100% certain that there's no harm since medical problems can take that long, particularly for newborns. But overall, it's quite encouraging. Parents, of course, will still need to weigh the risks of what is known against all that remains uncertain. Data show that pregnant women have a higher risk of experiencing a severe COVID-19 problem when they are infected than women who are not pregnant. And there's some early data that shows that the risk of a preterm birth may be higher in pregnant women who become infected with COVID-19 than ones that don't. For these reasons, vaccination early in pregnancy most likely is beneficial, but there remains much that we don't know about this virus and the impact of the developing fetus, both from coronavirus infection and from the vaccine, is a question mark that's near the top of our list. What about for people who've had COVID-19? Should they still be vaccinated? The data on immunity after infection is becoming increasingly positive. We're seeing antibody levels in patients for many months after infection. And we have good reason to believe that the type of memory cells that allow the human body to immediately respond when confronted by a virus for the second time remains strong. But having said that, researchers are recommending that patients who had the disease still get the vaccine because the hope is that that either will provide greater immune protection 
or at least protection for a longer time period. At the same time, many patients report that for the first 24 to 48 hours after getting the vaccine, if they've had a previous coronavirus infection, that they've experienced fatigue, fever, and chills. But this is simply the body's response showing that it is mobilized to prevent a reinfection. It's the same type of response that we see in patients who receive the second vaccine after they had no reaction the first time. In fact, the body's response in people who've had previous COVID-19 has been so strong that some scientists are expressing the view that people who have recovered from the coronavirus might be able to skip the second shot altogether since in them, the first shot acts like the booster rather than being the initial exposure. However, at this time, the CDC does not recommend doing so. You know, now we are a full year, Jeremy, into this pandemic, and we still don't understand why some people become deathly ill after this coronavirus, while so many individuals are totally asymptomatic. Similarly, we don't know why some people after the vaccine get severe symptoms that can feel almost as bad as COVID-19, at least for a very short time period, while others report only a sore arm for a day or two. I know that listeners will flood us with questions on what this reaction, either to the first vaccine after COVID or to the second vaccine in general means. Let me point out, first of all, that those of our listeners who receive the vaccine and don't have a reaction, this does not mean that they do not have protection. The data indicates that they still would have the antibody response. It's just that their body has not produced the kind of symptoms that those who have the strongest reaction report. But I also want listeners to be very clear that the vaccine does not contain any live virus. You can't get COVID-19 from a vaccine. The symptoms that are produced are caused by our own body's immunologic response, not from any kind of active infection or any kind of allergic response. It's the normal response but why in some people it's very severe and in others it's minimal and inconsequential, that remains simply another puzzle for researchers to figure out going forward. To that end, I've heard people talk about not getting the second shot for fear of a severe allergic reaction. Uh, what's the data on that risk? Early in the pandemic, we talked about how people might delay getting the vaccine until there was enough proof that the vaccinations were safe with negligible consequences. We're at that point now. Anaphylaxis is the big allergic fear. It's a life-threatening reaction 
that poses a danger from taking any medication, or for that matter, getting stung by a bee. But so far, it has occurred in fewer than five people per one million doses administered, according to data from the CDC. That's getting in the range of getting hit by lightning or attacked by a shark. And even then, by being observed by a medical professional for half an hour after you receive the vaccine, your chances of dying are relatively minuscule. Across the United States so far, there have only been 66 cases of anaphylactic reaction and no deaths. This vaccine is safe and the allergic fears, except in individuals with very severe allergic histories, is almost non-existent. Robbie, listeners were also asking for updates on the various mutant strains, which we've talked about in the past uh, several podcasts. What's the latest update on those? Although at this point, Jeremy, there exist hundreds of different mutants. Most of the variants aren't much different than the original. However, three are worrisome. The B117 originated in the United Kingdom and has been documented in over 1,200 patients in the United States. But since we really test for genetic viral structure in the US, that means the variant is relatively common. And some people think that it's becoming the most prevalent strain. Based on data from the UK, this virus appears to be 50% more transmissible and 30% more virulent than the original version. The good news is that the current vaccines appear to afford protection against this strain. In contrast, the virus from South Africa, labeled B1351, has been found in only 20 or so people in the US. But this variant appears to be more resistant to the vaccines than the mutant form from England. Overall, in the laboratory, antibodies generated by people after receiving the vaccine were only one-third as effective at blocking the spike protein used by the virus to attach to human cells, according to an article in the New England Journal of Medicine. However, that's a laboratory test, and we are still awaiting human data to figure out exactly the impact of the various forms of this virus relative to the vaccines that are being administered. Scientists from Pfizer and Moderna still believe that the neutralizing antibody levels generated by the US vaccines will be sufficient to fight this mutant form. But the dangers of the reason why vaccinating people as quickly as possible will be vital. The final mutant, the P1 from Brazil, has only affected a few individuals in the United States, but if it proves resistant to the available vaccines, the risks of it becoming similar to the South African version are equivalent. As we mentioned earlier in the show, early data out of California indicates that we may have a fourth variant, one that is becoming the dominant form in California, although, no, although not yet spread to the rest of the United States. Both Pfizer and Moderna have begun laboratory work to gauge the overall effectiveness of the vaccines against the various mutant strains. 
Robbie, our good news segment is valued by listeners looking for something positive in the pandemic. Obviously, a third vaccine is great news. Uh, what else is good this week? Jeremy, one of the pieces of good news this week was the announcement by Pfizer that the company would be able to deliver 2 billion doses of vaccine by the end of the year. Assuming Moderna can match that level of production, vaccine availability in the U.S. won't be an issue. Combining these two vaccines with the one from Johnson & Johnson, as well as the Russian one and the Chinese one that we discussed in our last broadcast, means that an ever larger percentage of the world could have the pandemic controlled sometime in 2022. And as we said, both Moderna and Pfizer have said that they could modify their vaccines to address new mutants without having to significantly alter the production process, although regulatory approval will still be needed. But to that end, the FDA has indicated that they will require, but to that end, the FDA has indicated that it will require scaled down tests of new modified vaccines and that it will be sufficient to test the safety and effectiveness of the modified RNA simply against the current vaccines rather than to measure it against an entire unvaccinated population. Putting the pieces together, this will dramatically speed up the process from vaccine concept to creation to administration. We very well could find ourselves needing booster shots at periodic intervals as the vaccine continues to mutate until herd immunity is achieved, not just in any one nation, but around the globe. Robbie, a friend of mine wanted to know what's happening in New York State. Early in the pandemic, Governor Cuomo was held up as a coronavirus hero, and now he seems to be uh, attacked not just by Republicans, but by his own party in the state legislature. What's going on in New York with Governor Cuomo? Jeremy, New York was hit hard by the coronavirus, probably because New York is a popular tourist destination, and many people came there from countries in which the virus was already recognized and infecting people. When the cases surged and hospitals were overwhelmed, the governor implemented a clear, effective strategy of social distancing, reversing the trend of what seemed like an inevitable total disaster. In that way, he was held up as a role model for others. Now there's evidence that he and his administration failed to disclose the total number of nursing home deaths, making the state's problems seem less severe than they actually were. More specifically, although we now know that over 15,000 people have died from COVID-19 in New York's nursing homes and long-term care facilities, that the state reported only 8,500 deaths as recently as late January. Clearly, the data submitted was inaccurate and inappropriately altered. Contributing to the criticism of the governor was a policy he put in place that sent patients with active disease back into the nursing homes where they remained ill, but no longer required a hospital stay. In this way, they were at risk of infecting the other residents and the staff. 
At the time, critics felt that this added danger, even if it allowed capacity to remain in the besieged hospitals, was a mistake. And in retrospect, they were right. But to me, this is another example of how lethal the lack of transparency for political gain can be. In truth, the governor faced a difficult challenge. He had to weigh their loss of risk for elderly people in nursing homes against the risk of death for others who came to the hospital but couldn't get care when there was no capacity in critical care units or in the ED itself. He could have talked openly about this impossible choice and accepted blame for how inadequately prepared public health and hospital facilities were for a viral pandemic of this magnitude. But that's not what politicians do these days. Truth is often ignored when the political consequences are threatening. When you're fighting a virus that doesn't care about politics and you play that game, the results are lethal. Hopefully elected officials from both parties will have learned this lesson from the massive challenges we've faced over the past year. But when it comes to politics, I have my doubts. We've talked about mental health issues for nearly a year. Anything new there? Each week, more data pile up on the negative consequences that have come from social distancing and isolation. Young adults have been impacted particularly hard. 25% of people between the ages of 18 and 24 report new or major increases in substance abuse, with 26% describing suicidal thoughts. And during the pandemic, nearly half of all women have reported depressive symptoms as they find themselves unable to balance the increasing demands of work and home. Furthermore, over half of individuals who experienced either job loss or significant income decline have also reported mental health symptoms. I mean, Jeremy, these are huge percentages for a health problem that often proves devastating. During the past year, the number of people dying from drug overdoses was 81,000, up from 71,000 the year before. This is the highest number in history. Without question, the mental health impacts of coronavirus and the social distancing and isolation as a result has been major. A largely undiscussed opportunity, however, for people without health coverage is to get medical health assistance by enrolling in the exchanges, which have been recently reopened and will be available for enrollment until May 15th. People can sign up for coverage who are uninsured, whether they find themselves in this position due to a loss of job or because they never had medical insurance in the past. The entire process will be facilitated and supported under the recent executive order issued by President Biden. Although the executive order itself only mandates the creation of this new extended open enrollment period in the 36 states that use the federal exchange, nearly all of the other states with their own exchanges will most likely follow the federal 
lead. Although vaccines are free, treatment of patients with COVID isn't. And as such, for listeners who might not have insurance, there's no better time to enroll and get covered than now. I remember about a year ago talking about uh, Mardi Gras and how it was a real super spreader event. Uh, what happened this year in New Orleans? Jeremy, your memory is excellent. It's estimated that the crowds overflowing the streets of New Orleans last year led to as many as 50,000 deaths from COVID-19. Recognizing the danger, New Orleans mayor this year canceled the annual celebration and mandated that bars be closed. Some people still found ways to celebrate by decorating their backyards for the festivity and throwing necklaces from their rear porch. But overall, the partying was a tiny fraction of what it had been. I'm optimistic that the parades, festivities, and Bourbon Street music will be back next year at a time when the overwhelming majority of Americans have been vaccinated and are now immune from this particular coronavirus infection. Jeremy, we've now passed a half million deaths in the United States, more than both world wars combined. If we had known at the start of the pandemic that a vaccine would be highly effective, safe and available in less than a year, do you think our nation would have been willing to embrace tight restrictions, similar to how the United States responded during the various global conflicts? Robbie, I don't think so. And the reason for that is, you know, a virus does not seem like as much as a, a tangible threat as a military threat. I'd be much rather living through the time I'm living through now than living through World War I or II, you know, either home or abroad. I would be much, much, much more terrified of Nazi Germany than I am of COVID-19. If it was the Black Plague and we were living in the Middle Ages, that would be a totally different story. But with you know, modern conveniences, such as being able to work remotely, iPhones, Netflix, et cetera. You know, the virus is not as scary as a foreign threat. That being said, I think if we knew a safe and effective vaccine was on the way in a short period of time, I think people would still look at the damage the economic restrictions would have done on the economy and the mental health crisis it would have caused uh, across the country and wonder, is it worth it? Robbie, several listeners told us that they never understood the intersection of healthcare in the United States and the rest of the world until our most recent set of podcasts. What's new from a global perspective? Jeremy, from the positive side, we see data coming from Israel that reassures us that light is at the end of the tunnel. Researchers there compared 600,000 people who had been vaccinated with 600,000 who had not been. In the first group, there was a 94% lower rate of infection, a 92% less likelihood of developing serious illness overall. Moreover, the protection worked not just for younger individuals, but also for people over the age of 70. And as the percent of the Israeli population that has been vaccinated is now past the 50% mark. The total number of cases that are being reported across the country is plummeting. The nation recently made vaccination available to anyone over the age of 16 who wanted it. It's expected that by the end of March, 
Every citizen will have been vaccinated, except those who refused to have the vaccine administered. And epidemiologists are optimistic that this will be the first nation to achieve herd immunity. Recent data from Israel also demonstrates that people have major immunity one week after the second vaccine, and that it is even higher at two weeks. The Israeli government, in response to all this positive information, is creating an internal passport system to allow people who have been vaccinated to show a certificate on their cell phones, and with it, they'll be able to access event halls, arenas, and indoor restaurants. In contrast to the vaccination success in relatively wealthy countries across the globe, poorer nations are falling farther and farther behind. Whereas the US is now approaching 20% of all people vaccinated and the UK 30%, throughout South America, the rate is only 2% and in Africa, it's under 1%. And as of last week, there were 130 countries that had yet to administer a single shot. It's estimated that in these nations, it'll be 2024 before the populations are protected, which poses the risk of the virus continuing to replicate and mutate and eventually producing a new wave of coronavirus infections, not just in those nations, but in the US and Europe. Although the US has not agreed to share any of its current or promised vaccine supply with these poorer countries, President Biden has committed $4 billion to the World Health Organization's COVAX program. And this program is committed to providing vaccine to at least 20% of the population of the world's poorest 92 nations. Of interest, some of the smaller European nations have lost confidence in the ability of the European Union to deliver sufficient vaccine, and they will be turning to China for much of their vaccine supply. Already, Serbia has signed an agreement and received the first 1 million doses. This is another example of China's growing scientific prowess and power and becoming a force around the world, increasingly similar to the United States. Finally, a coalition of organizations that include Amnesty International, Oxfam, and UNAIDS is asking vaccine manufacturers to open source their products and allow manufacturers around the globe to produce the life-saving vaccines that people need who otherwise wouldn't be able to receive them at least for a year or more in the future. You know, Jeremy, one thing this pandemic should have taught us, when it comes to viral infections, there's no such thing as impermeable national borders. What happens in any country around the globe affects all countries around the world. We're all in this together, whether we like it or not. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth, and have a great day.